0: So, kids, if whenever you're working with a puzzle, a jigsaw puzzle, do you ever get frustrated, especially when you have a lot of pieces, that the pieces just aren't quite fitting together? Thank you. Some, some of the older adults feel that pain, too. Now, th- today, I, I want you to think about each and every person in this church as a piece of a puzzle, a big puzzle, and you are one of the pieces of the puzzle, As well and what God wants to do with each of these pieces of puzzle which includes you is to display a beautiful picture of his love to the world but sometimes what happens is we're selfish and we want to choose our own ways and we keep the puzzle from being completed And when the puzzle isn't completed, you get frustrated and the world can't see the beautiful picture of God's love that he wants to show through us. So in today's sermon, Paul is going to encourage the Philippians to fit their lives just like puzzle pieces to live for the needs of others instead of being selfish. And if they do this, if they fit their lives like puzzle pieces, like trying to find the right way to, to meet the needs of others, that we would be able to experience joy, and then the world would be able to see a beautiful picture of God's love among us. So listen up to this sermon this morning, because I'm going to give you a secret ingredient that actually Paul gives us that, makes, that will help us make this a reality in our church as well. Church, we are back this week after taking a week off in our journey through the book of Philippians. Just to summarize briefly where we've been, we've learned so far that Paul is writing this letter from prison in Rome awaiting trial, and what we've seen in Paul's life thus far is the work of the Holy Spirit producing indestructible joy even when potentially facing a sentence of death. We've seen that Paul's source of joy, first and foremost, comes from being captivated by Jesus Christ, considering himself a slave of Christ because of the grace and peace that he has received, that has transformed his former life as a murderer to now a forgiven saint. And then we saw that God's people also bring him deep and satisfying joy, as Paul considers the fellowship and partnership that he experiences with the Philippians. Now, this morning's text is a continuation of the exhortation Paul gives in Philippians chapter 127, in which he says, to live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Last week's passage, or two weeks ago's passage, focused on how to do that when you're faced with threats from outside the church. Now, this week's passage is going to focus on how to live your life in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, or as Cale defined it, match our lives with the gospel when we are faced with threats from within the church. Now, there are hints already brewing in today's text that there is some internal strife in the church, and Paul is going to acknowledge that that has kept him from fully experiencing joy. So this passage this morning is an emotional appeal from Paul's part to increase his joy by calling the Philippians to unity that is rooted and motivated in the gospel. I'm sure all of you this morning can relate to relational strife and conflict in the church. If you have never experienced conflict in your relationships, in the church especially, it might be because you're not living your life in close proximity to other people but I'm sure most of you have. And when you have some unresolved issue with someone else, doesn't it just eat at you? Even when you know that two other people are in conflict that you're not involved in, it still steals your joy, doesn't it? It certainly affected Paul's joy when he heard about these things in the Philippian church. And Paul knew that it would not take long for the seeds of disunity to threaten the mission of the church and eventually its very existence. So with this in mind, Paul encourages the Philippians towards gospel unity, and he hopes that they would experience the fruit of that gospel unity, which is indestructible joy. So the big idea for today's passage is this. Our joy increases as we humbly strive for gospel unity in the church. Our joy increases as we humbly strive for gospel unity in the church. I have five points this morning. Let's see how we do when we have more points than we have verses. But let's get at it. Here are the five points first, the basis and motivation of our unity. Second, we'll look at the nature of our unity. Third, the threats to our unity. Number four, the key to our unity. And little kids, that's going to be the secret ingredient. That's point number four. And four, the fruit of our unity. So let's jump in. The basis and motivation of our unity. The passage begins with the word "so," or some of your translations have therefore, which directly connects it to the previous passage, previous section in which Paul is encouraging the Philippians to be united and courageous against those that oppose the church. And by connecting these two sections, Paul is helping us see that unity in the church is directly connected to our gospel witness in the world. So this is very important. Look at verse 1, and you can hear how Paul begins this passage. This is an emotional appeal on Paul's part as a pastor who dearly loves his flock. He says, So, Philippians. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, make my joy complete. Paul here is appealing to their common experience that they share together in the gospel. And because of these common experiences, Paul defines the basis of their unity In accordance with these common experiences. So let's consider these four common experiences that the Philippians shared because of the gospel and they're going to reflect the common experiences that we all share together as believers in Christ as well. First, our common experience of encouragement in Christ. Paul begins by drawing their gaze to the objective reality of encouragement that they have experienced by being united in Christ. In fact, in fact, all the blessings that we have in the gospel are brought to us because of our union with Christ. Whether it's being elected by God before the foundations of the world, whether it's being forgiven of our sins, whether it's being adopted into God's family, whether it's the joy and the hope of being with God forever, all of these blessings come to us because of our close union with Christ, because of our faith in Him. Paul is reminding them that they share this common experience of blessings in the gospel because of their union with Christ. Next, Paul reminds them of their common experience of receiving comfort from God's love. Now remember that Philippians were experiencing opposition and persecution and affliction from those outside the church who opposed them. And Paul is saying here, you know, church you know what it means to experience from God Himself when you are afflicted. This is very similar to Paul's letter to the Corinthians in which he says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we abundantly share in His comfort too. Paul is reminding them, Just as your afflictions have increased, just as the opposition towards you has increased, so has the comfort that you have all received from God's love. And we both share this in common. Next, Paul reminds them of the blessing of experiencing fellowship or participation in the Holy Spirit. Now, this blessing, or fel- uh, this blessing of fellowship with the Spirit naturally flows from the first two blessings because it is through the Spirit that we experience our union with Christ. And it is through the Spirit that we experience the comfort of God's love that has been made known to our hearts. Paul is not just talking about some individual fellowship that we experience with the Spirit, although that is absolutely true. But Paul is emphasizing the corporate fellowship that we have with God and with one another because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever met another believer And within moments, you experience a shared common bond with them, even though you don't know much about them. This is the work of the Spirit, binding our hearts together in fellowship with other believers. Paul is saying, we've experienced this together. Finally, Paul reminds them of the common blessing of experiencing affection and sympathy that God has produced in them by His Spirit for each other. Now, specifically, Paul here is referring to the affection and sympathy that the Philippians have for Paul on the one hand, and also that Paul has had for the Philippians. Remember how the the Philippians have eagerly sent one of their own, Epaphroditus, to, 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 to care for Paul, to encourage Paul, to send gifts to Paul? They remembered Paul in his affliction in prison and they were moved by affection and sympathy for him. Why is that? It is the blessing of the gospel, a common experience that all believers in Christ share, that the Spirit himself moved upon the Philippian church to overflow in their concern and generosity towards Paul. Paul is saying we share in these common experiences together. Now, church, have you experienced these realities of the gospel? The world finds its unity in similar interests, in sports teams, music tastes, political affiliation, but the church is different. We are the only ones in the whole world who have experienced these common experiences that Paul is talking about. We are the only ones who have experienced the encouragement in Christ, the only ones who have experienced the comfort of God's love, the only ones who have experienced the fellowship that comes with God's Spirit and with one another. Brothers and sisters, this is the basis of the deep unity that we experience now, and it is going to last into all eternity when all these other affiliations fade. Now what Paul is doing here, he's using these common experiences to ground their unity in the gospel. But he's also using these common experiences to to, to make a wedge In the life of the Philippians, and he's making a wedge in their lives so that the gospel can make progress in their lives. He knows that the gospel must be at the root of all godliness, so he hopes that the gospel itself will further motivate the Philippians to strive for unity. So point number two, let's see how Paul does that, the nature of our unity now that Paul has described the basis and motivation for their unity, which is in their common experience in the gospel, he further goes and defines the nature of their unity in the gospel. Church, unity is critical. It is something that does not happen automatically. It is something that we must strive for together, especially in the church. Unity is hard-fought, hard-won, and very easy to lose. Paul knows this, and so he's going to show them how they are to strive for unity. Verse 2, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. These four terms are very similar, but they, in essence, define two dimensions of gospel unity. Unity of mind and unity of affection. So let's consider each of these dimensions briefly. Unity of mind. The first and last of these words here, the same mind and one mind, they're they're focused on what we think and what we believe about one another. Another way to describe what Paul is talking about here is having a certain mindset or attitude towards one another. The focus here is not on having the same views on doctrine, although the core doctrines of our faith are a substantial source of unity for us. I don't want to minimize that at all. But that's not what's Paul's focus here. Rather, the unity of mind that Paul is focused on is an attitude of humility that he wants to develop in the Philippians towards one another. The reason I think this is true is that he uses the same word in verse 5 when he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. More on this next week, in the sermon next week. But Paul wants them to be like-minded, just like Christ, in their disposition of humility towards one another, reflecting the humility of Christ. So that's the unity of mind that Paul is talking about. Second is the unity of affection. Paul is not only just calling them towards a unity of humility in their mindset towards one another, but he's also calling them to an affection, a love for one another. So between these two words, same mind and one mind, Paul uses two terms. He says, having the same love and being of full accord. The, full, the word full accord might better be understood as, there's really no word for it in English. it be, might be better understood as souls in harmony. The one English word, I don't love this word, but a word that could capture it is the word soulmate. So so Paul is calling the Philippians to a type of unity that is evidenced in their love and affection for one another, a spiritual oneness. There's a genuine warmth in the type of unity that Paul is talking about here. Friends, theological unity is important in the life of the church, but it is not sufficient. The Philippian church was not in danger of theological compromise. Rather, they were slipping in their unity of mind and their affection for one another. So friends, if we are united in our attitude of humility, if we're united in our affection for one another, we have everything necessary to address our differences, whether theological or relational. Paul certainly thought so for the Philippians. Next, point number three. Let's talk about the threats to our gospel that Paul points out here. So after giving us the basis and motivation for our unity and then describing the two dimensions of our unity, which is a humble mindset and an affection for one another, Paul describes two significant threats that can hinder our unity. Verse three, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Selfish ambition and conceit. Paul suspects that these specific versions of pride were likely the root cause of the disagreements in the church. And these two vices can be dangerous in any church and can cause division and disunity if left unchecked. Selfish ambition is an attitude by which we evaluate situations and circumstances in terms of how it benefits me, how well it aligns with my views, and what I think should happen in a situation. Paul uses the same word earlier to describe those who are preaching Christ selfishly to elevate their platform above Paul's. So selfish ambition can rise up when we want to be seen as important in the church. It can rise up when we think our opinion on a disputable matter should be adopted by the whole church. Now conceit refers to when you think of yourself too highly. Have you ever looked at the mirror and been impressed with yourself? I hope you haven't. But if you look like Dwayne the Rock Johnson, I would totally understand why you would be. Regardless, maybe you're not impressed with yourself physically, but maybe you carry a general sense of just being impressed with yourself. Impressed with your own giftings, your intelligence, your theological aptitude, your wisdom and insight into situation. And you look at others and think, I'm better than you. I could do that better than you don't you wish you were me some of you are not tempted in that way and I praise God for that but I can certainly see these temptations play out in my own heart and friends this is dangerous and this is conceit in the context of church in the context of our church selfish ambition and conceit can cause us to demand others to recognize our importance And if others don't recognize our importance, we dismiss them. And we come up with some way to convince ourselves that something is wrong with them because they don't see my brilliance, they don't see my giftings, they don't understand my contributions. It comes from a mindset which says, I deserve to be recognized. Friends, if these attitudes, which begin in the heart, are left unchecked, Paul warns us that they could threaten the unity of the church. So instead, Paul gives us the key to gospel unity. Point number four, the key to our gospel unity. After Paul warns them about the threats to their gospel unity, he gives them the key ingredient, and this is the secret ingredient to achieving unity. And it is this, humility. Humility. Humility by considering others more significant than yourselves and looking into the needs of others. Verse 3 and 4. In humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you, not, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's interesting that Paul sees humility as the key medicine that the Philippians need to grow in to achieve gospel unity. It's not intelligence. It's not skill. It's not knowledge. It's not experience. It's humility. And that is a really hard pill to swallow, isn't it? Calvin says this, John Calvin says this, If anything in our whole life is difficult... This, above all else, is so. Talking about humility. Hence it is not to be wondered if humility is so rare of virtue. For as one says, everyone has in himself the mind of a king by claiming everything for himself. See, here is pride. Afterwards, from foolish admiration of ourselves, that's conceit, arises contempt for the brethren. And the threat to gospel unity humility is difficult isn't it by nature we are prideful concerned with our own needs our own reputation humility is unnatural to sinful human beings but not only that but humility is was also countercultural in this greco-roman context that the philippians lived in In fact, Greek philosophers considered humility to be a weakness that you could control that that, that you could that you could avoid by, by controlling yourself. Roman culture as well, Roman culture was a culture in which honor was exalted and shame was to be avoided at all costs. Humility was seen as a sign of weakness that brings shame. And there are many in the Philippian church that are in this context where humility, in this culture where humility is not valued and prized. You can see some of that in our own culture as well. So Paul is encouraging them to do something that is not only unnatural to their sinful heart, but also a countercultural to their context. And he's saying, Do this, consider others more significant than yourselves. Look out for the interests of others. Well, Paul, how the heck are we supposed to do that? Who's going to take care of me and my needs? And how are we going to consider others more important? What about me? Here's what Paul says. How can we consider others more significant? Here's just a couple of practical ways. First, we recognize that each member in the body of Christ is, in, is, in, is essential. Every piece of that puzzle that God has brought together and is bringing together in our church is absolutely essential. There is no more important puzzle piece, less important puzzle piece. There is no one that's better than anyone else in the body of Christ. Why is that? because at the foot of the cross we we were all sinners destined for judgment who have been rescued by a merciful God. And if that is true, it's easy to honor others. It's easy to consider others more significant than yourselves. But how can we look to the needs of others before ourselves? Well, we look to the gospel again. We look at the cross and we see that Jesus has lavishly met all our needs, but more specifically, our greatest need in paying our debt, a debt that we could not repay ourselves. And he's freed us to no longer worry for our needs, but to look towards the needs of others. Friends, a humble person is one who has so deeply experienced the encouragement in Christ, has received comfort from God's love, and has enjoyed fellowship in the Spirit with one another, that he is no longer concerned with his own needs, but finds joy in serving others. And I pray that the Spirit would increasingly do that work among us. Finally, the fruit of our unity. We've considered the basis and motivation of our unity, the nature of our unity, the threats to our unity, and finally we'll consider the fruit of gospel unity, which is Completing our joy. Let me read the whole passage again. See if there is any encouragement. So, sorry. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Really try and get a hold of Paul's logic here. He's saying that if our common experience of the benefits of the gospel has expressed in itself for your love for me, then complete my joy by having the same love for one another. I hope that makes sense. Let me say it another way. Paul is saying, If you have experienced deep affection and sympathy towards me as I have towards you, so pretend I'm Paul, you're the Philippians. If if you've experienced deep affection and sympathy for me as I have towards you, then do so among each other. And that would complete my joy. That's what Paul is doing in this passage. We've seen that Paul is filled with joy as he thinks about the gospel. And we see that Paul increases in his joy as he thinks about the Philippians' concern and care for him. But there's still something lacking in Paul's joy, and it's caused by the disunity in the church. Paul is saying, the same love that you've shown me, which I so appreciate, please show that to one another. We've all shared these amazing blessings of the gospel together, and if you do so, you will complete my joy. And by implication, you will also increase in your joy. When the gospel of Jesus transforms our hearts, our joy is inextricably linked to the joy and well-being of other believers. We know that the path of selfish ambition and conceit leads to emptiness and disappointment. There is no joy at the end of that road. But we can experience deeper, richer, more fulfilling joy and satisfaction when our hearts are drawn to one another in humility and love. So we've considered so far in Philippians a few different sources of joy in the life of Paul. And we can end again with this big idea from this passage that would be another source of indestructible joy for us as a church. Our joy increases as we humbly strive for gospel unity in the church. All right, let me just close with a few points of application. There's so much application in this passage, but let me just point out two. Number one, be the kind of person that finds joy in gospel unity. This is something Jesus prizes for his church, and it's something that we should desire and find our joy in as well. Can you say with Paul that your joy finds its completion when you see the church growing in gospel unity? Can you say that? Paul warns in other passages about those that stir division and discord. He warns the Corinthian church against divisions and factions. He warns Timothy against those in the church who have an unhealthy craving for controversy and are quarrelsome. Here's what he says in 1 Timothy 4, a warning about this person. This person is puffed up with conceit, the same word we, we saw today, understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrel about words, which produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Don't be that guy. that's what paul's saying now church in the last five years we have seen the face of the larger evangelical church in our country dramatically change those who would have firmly agreed on core doctrines of our faith have severed ties broken relationships left churches on issues ranging from politics to covid to race and on and on It has been heartbreaking to see the rift that has grown among brothers and sisters in Christ that has been created over these issues. However, I praise God for the abundant grace that is so evident among you. While there are different views on many of these issues in our church, you have all displayed lives that are worthy of the gospel— by striving for gospel unity even in the midst of sharp disagreements. So I thank God for his grace among you, and that increases my joy as a pastor, and I hope it increases your joy as well as you see how the Lord has preserved our gospel unity. Now second, be the kind of person that strives to resolve disagreements with humility. Be the kind of person that strives to resolve disagreements with humility. Now, gospel unity sounds great to us, but we can be tempted to want others to be united with us in how we think about a whole slew of issues. Don't you, wouldn't there be so much joy if everyone just agreed with me? That would be the best solution to Oh, That's what we think. That would be the best solution to unity. If everyone would just think like me, we would not have any problems. We would be united with Dan. With everything Dan thinks about everything. But church, the reality is that there are many things in our life together that we are going to disagree about. Now, just to give you a sample, I'm not trying to stir anything up, but just to give you a sample of some of the bigger issues that have caused ruptures in other churches, let me give you a sample of things believe, people believe in our church. Don't freak out. There are some people here that voted for Trump. There are some people here that voted for Biden. There are some others that voted for neither. There are some here who are passionate about getting vaccinated against COVID. There are some others that are passionately against that. There are some that believe it's unwise for parents to send their kids to public schools. There are others that think Christians ought to be more involved in public schools. There are some here that believe wokeism is the greatest threat to the church. There are others here that believe Christian nationalism is a greater threat to the church. I'm seeing all y'all. I'm part of this too. I have had great conversations with people with all of these views in our church. And there are significant issues with major consequences. I'm not trying to diminish them. And I'm, I'm so thankful that all of that could exist among a people, and there is still a sense of love and humility and unity here. I praise God for that. But how can we maintain gospel unity in the midst of such persistent and significant disagreements let me give you some practical tips, and I'll, I'll, I'll end with this. this is, I found this really helpful from Bobby Jameson, who's a pastor at uh, Capitol Hill Baptist. He says this, in, in all these situations, and those are just kind of like high-end stuff, right? Think about that in just any relational situation you might find yourself in disagreement. But here's what he says we must do. Pursue a common mind in all these sharp disagreements And where that fails, preserve a common love. Pursue a common mind, and where that fails, preserve a common love. Let me flesh that out a little bit, and he does this. So when we say pursue a common mind, in all of these situations, pray for a common mind. Lord, help us be humble. Help us be humble as we discuss these issues with each other. To get together in person, let me encourage you that social media is not the best place to have these conversations. It's not the best place to persuade others of your views. And knowing that there are others in your own church that see these views differently than you, I would encourage you to pursue these conversations in private. That would be most beneficial. I'm not saying to avoid these conversations. That's, that's not the type of church we are. We want to have these conversations. They're important. Pursue these conversations in private. Third, listen and try to understand their position. When you feel so strongly about something, you just want to tell someone, like, I'll tell you why you're wrong, but let me encourage you. The first time you get together, let the other person do most of the talking. Learn what the other person thinks and why. Try to understand their position in a way that you can repeat it to them without misrepresenting them. This is a good question that, that I thought was helpful. Ask the person, what good are you trying to preserve by your position? Because everyone's kind of trying to do that, at least in the church. (laughs) So it would be good to know what they're trying to preserve. Ask about, consider together the biblical basis for your positions. Is your disagreement over the meaning of Scripture? Or is it the application of Scripture to something more complex in the world? Because there's a difference between the two. Root your confidence in the meaning of Scripture and allow for some differences in the application into the complexities in the world. And even when you're doing that, look for areas of agreement that you both hold together on the basis of Scripture. And finally, be, be open to having your thinking changed and reshaped by others. The other person that you sharply disagree with, who, they're reading the same Bible you are. They're indwelt by the same spirit that you are. So be open to learning from them. You have... Anyway, finally, that, that, that's, um, that's, that's how we pursue a common mind. Let's say you did all that. If all of that fails, preserve a common love. How can you do that? You can pray for a common love. Lord, give me love and affection for this other person I strongly disagree with. Now, another thing you can do is consider together that your disagreements about these secondary issues, they're superficial compared to the realities that unite you. We talked about some of these things today. We've all experienced encouragement in Christ. We've all experienced comfort in God's love, fellowship in the Spirit, and affection and sympathy for one another. Those things are eternal, brothers and sisters. There is much more that unites us than the things that we disagree about. Next, you can ask the person if you've wronged them in any way. In the heat of argumentation, I'm sure words are said in a way that are um, sinful. And a good opportunity to ask for forg- ask that person, have I wronged you in any way? And that would be an occasion to ask for forgiveness for the things that you have said that might have, that have hurt the other person. And then forgive one another just as Christ has forgiven us. And finally, pray, you know, commit your affection and love for them despite your disagreements. Pursue a common mind, and if all else fails, preserve a common love. I just want to share one example of this. Last year we did the Gospel and Race Project, and obviously, you know, race topic is uh, not controversial at all, right? So that's why we did it. Um, But I I don't see him here because he's out of town, but Chris Lawrence has been a huge encouragement to me and an example of this to me personally in this area. There were a lot of times throughout the year where we saw differently on issues relating to gospel and race. But it was awesome for him and I to get together. We got together several times. I read books that he recommended. He read books that I recommended. We sat, we talked, we listened, and man, by the end of the year, like, my respect grew for him, my love and affection grew for him. We didn't agree on everything. Um, but the way he pursued that with me, it, it was just such an exa- amazing example to me. And I hope that can be replicated, not just on race issues, but anything with politics, with homeschooling, whatever. I mean, these issues are just the issues of the day. They're going to be different tomorrow. Um, I'm sure we'll all, Never mind. It's going to make a Russia joke, but it's too soon for that. (laughs) Friends, uh, don't let disagreements devolve into despising one another and dividing with one another, especially over disputable matters. If Christ has welcomed them, think about that, the person that you disagree with. If Christ has welcomed them, so can you. And when you love another brother or sister, even through disagreement it demonstrates that your life matches the gospel because it shows that you love Christ more than your strongly held opinion. Church, there has been much grace among you in this area already, and let me encourage you to continue to maintain that gospel unity in the bond of peace. Man, this is the kind of revival that I think would be amazing that we could pray for, a revival of gospel unity in the church. Man, this, this, is the, this is the prayer that Jesus prayed, that, that we would be one just as Jesus and the Father are one. And isn't this what Jesus says, that, that the world will know that you are my disciples, what? Because of our love for one another. Man, I don't know how hot we're doing in that area, in the larger church. This church, totally rocking it. I love it. Yes, it will require us relinquishing our rights. Yes, it will require us leaning into relationships. That might be hard. But oh, that we would increasingly experience the fruit of gospel unity, which is indestructible joy.